Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. I'd like to tell you about a fantastic new book that just released from Hanover Square Press called Femina, A New History of the Middle Ages Through the Women Written Out of It by Dr. Yanina Ramirez. The Middle Ages are seen as a bloodthirsty time of Vikings, saints, and kings, a patriarchal society that oppressed and excluded women. But when we dig a little deeper into the truth, we can see that the Dark Ages were anything but. Oxford and BBC historian Yanina Ramirez has uncovered countless influential women's names struck out of historical records, with the word femina annotated beside them. As gatekeepers of the past ordered books to be burned, artworks to be destroyed, and new versions of myths, legends, and historical documents to be produced, our view of history has been manipulated, and women of the Middle Ages have been almost entirely written out until now. In Femina, Dr. Ramirez invites us to see the medieval world with fresh eyes and discover why these remarkable women were removed from our collective memories. Femina by Dr. Yanina Ramirez is available now. Pick up your copy at your local bookstore. My name is Ashley, a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today with Cecile Penn. She grew up in Paris and New York City. She studied philosophy at University College London, followed by an MA at King's College London. She joins us today to talk about her debut novel, Wandering Souls. Cecile, thank you for joining us today. Hello, thank you for having me. My first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? Oh, that's quite a hard one. And I think in a way, the definition of feminism evolves all the time. But I would say the basic for me is, is advocating for the equality of opportunity between all women and all men. It's really fighting for just not being at a disadvantage because of being a Yes. And what is Wandering Souls about? So, Wandering Souls is a novel which begins right after the Vietnam War is over. And it follows Anton and Min, three siblings who leave their village in Vietnam and embark on a journey first at a refugee camp in Hong Kong and then to the UK during the Margaret Thatcher era in the late 70s, early 80s, at a time of really big societal and political upheaval. And they've lost their parents and their four younger, younger siblings while on the journey and unknown circumstances. And so they're really finding themselves in this completely new land having to deal with grief and trauma beyond beyond their age, really, and having to really build new lives for them. And Ellen is the oldest of the three children of her siblings. Why did you make the girl the oldest child? And how did you let her point of view empower the story? The story? Sure. So I think the first reason why I made her a woman, the older sister, is because just myself being a woman, it was just easier for me to identify with the struggles she would be going through. And the book is also partly inspired by my mother's story. Even though the character is, is different from my mom, and it's a fictional character, I also kind of wanted to, to make it as an homage to my mom as well. And it made for an interesting point of view to have this older sister who really, at the time, and in that culture, it was very much the man, right? The man of the family who would sort of lead the family. And putting Anne in this situation where she found herself becoming the leader of her family, but also father figure in a way, I thought made for a very interesting internal conflict for her and a very fascinating state for her to be in. And 
Why did you, there's a scene in the book where the, where the children have come to London and they're experiencing snow for the first time. And it's such a beautiful, precious moment amidst reading the story. That's such a great perspective for the characters. Why did you use snow as a place of joy and newness for the children? I don't know about you, but I still get that feeling when I, when I, especially when I don't know that it's been snowing and then you open the window in the morning and it's just snow all over. It's just such a magical feeling that I think everyone sort of relates to. And uh, I just imagine, and uh, this is something that my mom told me as well, was that when she first saw snow for the first time, she thought it was like incredible and she was really surprised. So I guess for me, it, it would just be a fun way to show the, the characters in their state of childhood and show them being children, which you, at that point in the novel, you just see them dealing with enormous grief and, and hardships. And I just wanted to infuse a bit of lightness to the novel. And then I thought it would be make for a nice scene to go sledding with them. And I think also there's just this idea of, of when snow is very clean, the first thing in the morning, how pure it is and why before it gets dirty by like, you know, dogs and like steps and everything. I thought that idea of really clean, pure snow can make for quite something that people could really visualize in their mind as well. Yes, it, it provides a, it's a, like a cleansing of a way. They're in a new place that feels, that's new to them, yet they're making it a home. So that snow is really representative of just the childlike nature, as you were mentioning, and also something that's clean and something that's new. And it was just such a precious part of the story given the layers of grief that they were dealing with, it reminds you as a reader that these are children. Mm -hmm. And even if they were adults in this new place, it would still have some newness and depth to it. Yeah, you're explaining it better than I am. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. And speaking of home, how did you create a home amidst assimilation and multiple new places? Yes, yeah, so... I think the, the definition of home changes throughout the novel for the character's home at the beginning is very much their village of long term in that specific house. And then I think the novel is really about finding a way to make home wherever you are. And for them, that's very much being with one another, being finding their people, building a community wherever they are, whether that's in Vietnam or Hong Kong or, or the UK. I think home becomes more of a an internal concept. And there's a lot of images of them cooking in the book, cooking Vietnamese food, and that contributes to that sense of home because it involves different senses, which invoke that, that familiarity to them. Yes. And it, I mean, you, you see these children move and eventually they move into adulthood. So it's them leaving their past, but also acknowledging it in a way of how their home is Built. Like they're being more open to decorating and making a place that's lived instead mm -hmm. of this place where they're going to be ending up leaving in a couple of months or so. They get to really make it home. Thank you. Yeah, there's this scene where they arrive in London and they can't believe that they have like a house finally to themselves because they were used in the camps to live with a lot of them at the time. And them finding stuff at the, you know, second hit shops for them to decorate their home with the little means that they had. It was this idea as well of making a place their own and leaving their mark, whether that was by putting up drawings that they made or putting a 
flowers and a vase on their dining table and so on. And it was just very much in the, the little details as well. Having little small processions as well was something that was important for them in building their more permanent home. So what does memory mean in, in a multitude of ways in enduring grief, revealing oneself to another, and rejecting fear? That's a hard question. I think, again, I mean, the book starts with Anne evoking her memories of that dinner that she had, the last supper she had with her family. And so I think I think memory is can be a bit conflicting sometimes because the characters are trying to move on as well and look towards their future, but also they always have that fear that they're not going to be able to remember what their mother sounded like or what their little brother looked like. And so I think it was important for me to show that conflict within the three the three living siblings. And so for that, I tried to invoke different senses. There is memories of smell, the visual memories, memories of touch, you know, for example, and hugging her mother for blast time and how her skin felt from the in the book. So it was important for me for the memories to be fully dimensional. And then as the book goes on, you have a little bit less of them having those full memories and it's more about them looking towards their future. But yes, it was an important point. I think it was important to show that memories are a bit of a double-edged sword sometimes. And the timeline of the story, I mean, it moves to even to present day, essentially, is so important to how these characters have memory. And it's not so much them losing away from what they've experienced, but understanding that they need to move on. So how do they do, how do they move on, but not ignore their past and what's happened to them, the trauma, the grief, but also the joy that they've had? I would just go to that, that you're right. And that I'm very glad that you noticed that part of the book. Good. And would you want to write family and its challenges and togetherness? Well, it's character has that, that sense of home, isn't it? I think once that's something that was inferred for me in the novel was to show that family isn't just blood. It's also bonds that you create through difficult times and through life. So you have, for example, Ban Duke, which is a grandmother and, and son duo that they meet in the UK at the camp in, in South with whom they create this really strong kinship with. And you can see that it lasts until the, the present day. So, you know, 40 years later. So for me, it was really about showing how those bonds are created. For example, the snow scene and how bonds are created for experiences. And then also with the family, obviously, even though the family is broken at the very beginning of the book, it's not something that, it's something that transcends death itself, right? And I think Anne still looks up to her mother and father to guide her actions, even though they're no longer here. So I think that idea of family and also, it was important for me to blast into the present day because I really wanted to show as well how trauma really transcends generation and it still affects the younger, the second generation of, of, of refugee. Yes, the, the sort of extended family, the community that's created amongst these siblings is such a pivotal part for them, especially because they meet a lot of these people as children. So it's, it's it's not just the family, your blood, but the family that you make along the way. And that's such a poignant way to say that in the story. Yeah. And how was food used to play a pivotal role in nourishing the soul and also creating community? This is something that a lot of refugees and, and daughters and some of the refugees can relate to is that food is quite an easy gateway and access way for us to connect our heritage. 
miniseries in books like Crying in H Park by Michelle Donner, which is one of my favorite books. But so the book starts with a, a family scene of them having their last supper together, which again was a way for me to evoke different senses and to make it come to life through to smell and taste. And then you also have scenes throughout the book, the three siblings having dinner, but also them cooking for, again, the the the, bond, the people they bonded with in the camp and in London. Um, it's a way for them to connect with, with people because it's something that they have in common, right? They, they know the food of Vietnam. It's an easy way for them to start conversation and then and to create that sense of kinship between their roommates or, or the people that were in the camp with them. And then also there's a scene that I have when they, when Anne goes to supermarket in the UK and, and she can't really find any of the ingredients that she's used to cooking with. And I, and it, for me, that was also a way of emphasizing that sense of displacement that I imagine she felt and that, that sense of feeling like maybe she didn't really belong there or, you know, feeling like she probably should assimilate and start being British food. And it was just a very visual way for me to, to show this in the book. Yes, because the story opens with a part of it is the smell of caramelized pork. Yeah. So it's something that's so distinct and it's also a gathering in its family. And then caramelized pork comes up again in the story. So it's, again, a part of that memory and a part of that place of belonging within the family just by this piece of meat. Yes, exactly. And it's, I don't know if you had that, but I... I I love caramelized pork. It's tit cots and it's a dish that my mother makes. And every, I try to cook it at home, but I'm not really good at it. But every time I, she cooks it for me and I go home, it just kind of brings me back. And it's such a comforting food for me to have. And this book is under 230 pages. Mm-hmm. At, at least my copy was. And this book reads as such an incredible epic. So how did you... What was the editing process like and what was most important for you to have in this story? I purposefully wanted to leave some gaps in the story and trust the reader to connect those gaps and and use their imagination, connect the dots. And also, I I always think that it's it's important for the reader to have their senior story, right? At the beginning, the narrative part of Anton and Min was a bit smaller. And through my editors in the UK and the US, it was really about making their narrative line more vivid and adding more details and, and some dialogue. So I was quite bad at dialogue when I first started. And then I I really also wanted to include different voices because I I'm, I was really inspired by reading books that include different voices like Human Acts by Hyde Kong or Hotel World by Alice Smith and Girl, Woman, Other by Bernard Hinebury. So I love those books because I think they bring out that sense of of community and, and something I think I, I felt like it would help make the story more global and universal so I included the voice of Dao which is their diseased little brother and I also wanted to include some non-fiction elements I, the book also has some for example a letter that Margaret Thatcher wrote to one of the refugees and some archival documents of, at the time and some sort of newspaper articles which I wrote but which are based on, on factual events and again I think that was to help put the story into the real world and I, obviously the refugee crisis is something that's still happening to me stay. And it was important for me showing the book as well that this is, even though the characters are fictional, this story happened in the Vietnamese book people was a real thing that happened and that is still happening today with different nations. And so it, I wanted really to 
put the story in the present world and in the actual world as well. Yes, because I mean, this could be a 500-page book easily, (laughs) but you give us such a succinct world that feels so full and the characters are well-developed. And I'm just like amazed that this book is less than half of 500 (laughs) pages, but you managed to do all of that. Thank you. And then my last question for you is, where would you like our audience to buy Wandering Souls from? Local bookshop. You know, as much as possible, support your local community, support your, your independent bookshop if you can. If you can't, you know, there's websites like bookshop.org, which is a way to support local bookshop while shopping online. Lucille Pin, thank you for joining us to talk about your debut novel, Wandering Souls. Thank you so much for having me. Nao Partners, Inc. is a Black-owned commercial real estate, urban planning, and community engagement firm based in St. Paul, Minnesota. We believe in developing generative results in the community while addressing the pressing challenges facing urban-built environments. Our work and belief system is rooted in applied empathy and putting people first. Our approach delivers thoughtful, human-centered solutions for clients and cultivates sustainable relationships. We make a conscious effort to hire local residents as community liaisons, staff, and consultants to support engagement in local communities. We hire local talent as interns and have developed an artist-in-residence program in order to build up young and upcoming professionals within our community. We are currently hiring for our summer intern program. We provide real estate development and business technical assistance to small business owners, entrepreneurs, and companies that share our values. So if you're a business owner looking to do things the right way the first time, it's time to do things the NAO way. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature.